Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. In 1944, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were prisoners, along with thousands of Jews, inside of a concentration camp in Germany called Ravensbrück. They were there because they had been discovered hiding Jews in their home in the town of Harlem in the Netherlands. In the concentration camp, every day, Corey and Betsy would lead Bible studies inside their barracks, inside their sort of their sleeping quarters. And when they did, when they led these Bible studies, something really unexpected happened. Something really amazing happened. I, I want to give uh, us a chance to hear Corey Ten Boom tell the story in her own words. So this is Corey Ten Boom in an interview in the early 1970s. So listen to Corey Ten Boom tell about what happened when they led these Bible studies inside the concentration camp. So I came in the barrack with my Bible. Can you imagine what that meant? And I gave every day twice a Bible message, or Betsy did it, and it was a, a joy to to bring this this uh, the to tell these people around me. When you give in your heart room for Jesus, he will give you a peace that passes all understanding. And sometimes they said, oh, how is that possible in this terrible prison? I said, just do it. And then the people asked Jesus to come in, into their hearts. And they got a peace, that peace that only Jesus can give. And uh, it, it was a, a joy to see how the people changed. There came really a great joy in their heart. And I've never talked so much about the, uh, the, the, the uh, heaven. I heaven, heaven, yes. I could in tell. concentration. Yes, I could tell about facing death. The, the, the best is to be people. When you die, and then you will be with the Father. And Jesus has said, I go and I, in my father's house mm -hmm. are many mansions. I, I go to prepare one for everyone who believes in me. And then I said, people, the suffering of this time is not worthy to be compared with the common glory. The, the process of the Bible became such a joyful reality. Wow, do you hear that? That's, that's Corey Ten Boom saying that the promises of the Bible became a joyful reality in a concentration camp. Saying that like during the some of the worst times in history, people are hearing these promises from Scripture and they're finding strength and peace and comfort in Jesus through the Scriptures. And you know, I can think of a hundred reasons that I've heard from the culture or even reasons that I've thought of myself for why we should search inside for strength, or why we should look to the universe, or to our friends, or anywhere but in Scripture. And I'm just like, where do people like this come from? You know, where does a Cory Ten Boom come from? How, how is it that the Bible is a source of comfort for some people, while other people find it offensive? You know? And, and what would it take for us to be able to go to Scripture first and find comfort and peace and strength in the way that Corrie ten Boom did? 
Well, this morning we're continuing through our series called Biblical. Our aim as we've been going through these weeks has been to try and cultivate a better relationship with the Bible by telling the stories of these a few saints whose relationship with the Bible cost them something. So rather than me giving lessons about the authority of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture or the sufficiency of Scripture, instead, we're just we're telling stories of real people who lived and died and whose whose relationship with the Bible actually cost them something. And so we began in the 4th century with Athanasius of Alexandria and the story of the Nicene Creed and the Arians and all of that, if you remember. And, and we, what we saw is that from the beginning, the church has always depended on the Bible to tell the truth Okay, from from the very beginning, there there has never been a time when Christians couldn't look to Scripture and count on it to answer our questions and tell us the truth with clarity and with authority and without errors. Well, then we went to the 10th century. We studied the life of Olga of Kiev, and for many of us, she was a new figure. We hadn't heard of her before. And what we saw when we studied Olga of Kiev is that the words of the Bible have the power to transform a person from from a, a violent, vengeful woman who burns and buries people alive into a holy, helpful saint. Last week when we were together, we were in the 16th century. We studied the life of William Tyndale. And in his story, what we saw is that to have a Bible in our own language is, is worth more than life. Well, today we're in the 20th century and we're studying the life of Cory Ten Boom of the Netherlands. And there's a few things that I think we need to understand by way of context. So the first is about the Jews. We just need to hear a, a word about the Jews. And, and mainly, why is there such prejudice at this time towards the, the Jewish people? Now, that's an important question because, you know, in our day... You know, we can't think of a time when the Jewish people, when the Jewish nation haven't had a a home in in Israel. As far as we can remember, it's always been true that the Jewish people have always, you know, been at home in Israel and in in Jerusalem. But it wasn't that way before World War II. In those days, the, the Jewish people are scattered across the world, scattered across Europe. And, and the Jews would settle in communities, in towns, and very often... Within a generation or two of settling in those communities, they would be seen as a threat. And they would be persecuted, and they would be called Christ killers, and they would be forced out. For example, if you've ever seen the story or the movie, The Fiddler on the Roof, if you've ever seen the play, uh, that's that's the premise of The Fiddler on the Roof. That's what's, what it's about. It's about this pro- pogrom where the Jewish people are removed from the, this community in Russia. Now, kids, the Jews are a Semitic people. Okay, and so when you hear the word anti-Semitism, what we're talking about is a fear of the Jews. We're talking about a prejudice against the Jews. It's this fear and this paranoia that the Jews are trying to take all the power, they're trying to take all the jobs, take all the money. That's what we mean by anti-Semitism. It's a prejudice against the Jewish people. And it was alive and well in Europe in the days before World War II. And so as our story of Cory Ten Boom begins, it's important to realize that all over Europe, many Jews are, are being persecuted and they're feared and distrusted and hated. 
and there are unfair laws that are being set up by governments in order to make them poor and hungry and to force them out and make them wander from country to country. And that's what it's like to be a Jew in Europe in this period. We also need to hear a word about the Nazis. We need to say a word about the rise of the Nazis and, and kind of where did they come from? Well, the years between World Wars One and Two were really hard years for Germany. I want you to imagine being a German and all of the countries of the world blame you for what happened in World War One. The whole, all, the whole world, it seems, had, had turned against them, had imposed all kinds of unfair uh, taxes and laws against them. And so imagine going to the grocery store and you have to pay $100 for a loaf of bread. Okay, that's kind of what it's like after World War One and in the days before World War Two. Well, in the 1930s, there comes this political party called the National Socialists. And the National Socialists say that Germany deserves better. They are this master race. They are better than everyone else. And the short, term, the short name for the National Socialists was actually the Nazis. And their leader, the leader of the Nazis, was an Austrian named Adolf Hitler. Now, Adolf Hitler convinced most of Germany that they had a, a glorious future, the only thing standing in the way of Germany's destiny was the Jews. And so eventually Hitler leads his army to invade Poland and France and the Netherlands and, and they surrender easily one by one. But meanwhile, Europe's Jews are being loaded onto Nazi trains and sent to prison camps. And it's, it was awful. Now kids, if you've ever heard of the Holocaust, this is it. These Jewish people did nothing wrong. They were just being themselves. They were taken from their homes just because of who they were. And they weren't sent to these camps in order to be prisoners, mainly. They were sent there to die. Now, when I was a school teacher, I remember spending some time with a Holocaust survivor, and he shared some of the stories of the things that he saw in the camps. And these are things that I can, I will never repeat these stories because they are just so awful. And what you need to know is that by the end of the Holocaust, about six million Jews and about a million others were killed by the Nazis. And so this is one of the worst periods in, in history. And Corrie ten Boom, who is a Christian and not a Jew, but she's a, she's a Christian, and she is caught up in the middle of it, and she's going to end up in one of those camps. So there's a word about the rise of the Nazis. One more thing for us to understand, maybe by way of context, is, is a word about the Christians. And, and, and just to, in answer to the question, where was the church? Well, not every, what everybody in Germany sided with the Nazis. When, when Hitler took power, many of Germany's churches supported Hitler. They believed that it was important for them to submit to the government and, and do as they were told. But the church was divided, and, and that really shouldn't be surprising because we see that in all kinds of ways. Some of the churches supported Hitler, and some of them believed that he was evil, and so they resisted. One example of that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've ever uh, read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote some really great books, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote about community. Um, he was part of a resistance against Adolf Hitler. But um, there, there were some churches in the, at this time who taught and believed that God had a very special love for Israel. These are Christian churches, okay? They believe that God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament were still going to be fulfilled, 
that God hadn't given up on Israel and that just before Jesus comes back, you know, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a revival among the Jews and they will come to faith in Jesus. Now, some of you who are theology buffs, if you've read some some theology, this is kind of classic dispensationalism. So these are Christians who, who, who in Corrie ten Boom's day and in her context, they pray for the Jews, they pray for peace in Israel, they pray for a return to Jerusalem, okay? And in the Netherlands, the church that Corrie ten Boom's family belonged to was a Dutch Reformed church, and it was dispensational. And they were one of these churches praying for Israel and praying for a revival among the Jews. And to be honest, I'm not sure why. I can't explain this. I actually, I, I couldn't figure out how a Dutch Reformed church ends up uh, praying for the, the praying for Israel. Uh, not that they should be against Israel, but I've just, most of the time, a Dutch Reformed church is going to end up kind of, you know, Calvinistic or have a, a embrace covenant theology or be amillennial. And if you don't know what these words mean, it's okay. But I've actually looked all over the place. I've asked Dutch pastor friends of mine. I've asked professor friends of mine. I can't explain how there ends up uh, being a Dutch Reformed church that is dispensational. If you have an answer to that question, I would love to hear it, but uh, I'm baffled about it. Anyway, regardless, uh, the church in the church in Europe, the church in Germany is divided over whether to support or to resist Hitler. But as things are getting worse for Europe's Jews, and as the things are getting, becoming better for the Nazis, as they're becoming more powerful, there are these pockets of Christian resistance that are springing up all over the place. And the Ten Booms were part of it. Well, now let's meet the Ten Booms. Corrie Ten Boom was born in 1892. Her parents were Casper and Cornelia, and, and she had two sisters and a brother. Corrie was closest with her dad and her older sister, Elizabeth, and she called her Betsy. Corrie's dad, Casper, was a second-generation jeweler, watchmaker, and, and he was renowned all over Europe. Everybody knew that his jewelry shop, his watchmaking shop, was the place to get a custom watch. And in the shop, as you can see, the shop was on the, the ground floor, and then there was a couple of stories above, and the family lived up there. They lived on the second floor and in the attic. Well, Corey's parents were also faithful Christ followers. And, and most days, uh, during the business day, Casper would close the shop a couple of times for a coffee break. And he would invite everybody upstairs for Bible readings. And he would, so he'd take them upstairs, the, the kids, of course, but also his employees. So his staff would come upstairs. And even the customers, he'd invite them upstairs. Everybody would go upstairs to listen to these Bible readings. And so from a young age, a foundation was being laid for Corey Ten Boom and the rest of the, the Ten Boom kids. No matter how successful dad had become as a watchmaker, what they could see is that it was scripture that was really important to him. That it, that was, it was scripture that sustained him. That's important. Well, as Corey grew up, her family had been using their home to help Jews escape England or, or the U.S. Things, you know, as tensions were rising and it became more and more difficult for Jews in Europe, the Ten Booms offered up their homes and they would have Jews stay with them from Germany or from Poland or from France or from Russia. And, and they would house them and feed them and serve them and, and then help them to get to safety, maybe in England or in the United States. So most of the time in the pre-war years, the house was full of visitors. Now, Corrie ten Boom was about 48 years old when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. 
And from then on, it became extremely dangerous to protect Jews in the Netherlands. So in 1942, there's a story of a, of a Dutch pastor who was visiting the Ten Boom family, and the Ten Booms introduced to him this Jewish mother and her baby who were staying with them. So Cory Ten Boom knows they're running out of space in the house, and she, so she asks this pastor if he would be willing to bring them into his house. And his answer was, definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child. Don't you understand? And, and Cory's dad comes into the room. Okay, Corey's dad comes into the room and she, she just tells the story and she says that his long white beard was tickling the baby's face and he looks down at this child affectionately and he says to the man, you know, you say that we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. Well, as things got worse and worse for the Jews, not only did the Ten Booms not stop sheltering the Jews, but they took some int very interesting steps. They smuggled ration cards so under the Nazis, a ration card was like a meal ticket. You'd take your ticket to the store and you'd trade it for food. But the Nazis weren't giving ration cards to the Jews. And so what the Ten Boom family did was they collected ration cards and they stole ration cards and, and they counterfeited ration cards and they would give them to the Jewish families so that they could eat. The Ten Booms also used their, their shop in order to make fake IDs so that the Jews could move from town to town without being arrested. And then, and this may be the part of the, the Ten Boom story that you might be familiar with, the Ten Boom family also built a wall and sort of a crawl space in Corey's bedroom up in the attic that was just big enough for a few people to hide. And when it was closed up, it was totally invisible, just looked like a normal wall. You, you wouldn't think anything of it if you saw it from with, with, your, with the naked eye. But, and, and so during the day, Jews would be hanging out with the Ten Boom family above the shop, safely because the windows and curtains were closed but at night or if there was danger if there were nazis nearby if the gestapo were doing inspections the jews would go up and hide in this crawl space they called this the hiding place because of psalm 119 verse 114 which says you are my hiding place and my shield i hope in your word and that sort of became a theme verse for the ten boom family you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Now, we don't know for sure, but after the war, it was estimated that the Ten Booms had helped something like 800 Jews escape death in, in uh, the Netherlands and in the concentration camps. And all of this was because the Ten Booms believed that God loved the Jews. Well, things continued this way until about 1944, a neighbor came to the door and Corey answers the door and, and this man explains that the Nazis had taken his wife. The Gestapo had arrested his wife. She's being held prisoner and he needs help raising the bail money because he doesn't have it. He needs 600 guilders and could Corey help him raise that money? She said, absolutely, I don't, I don't need it. But, so come back tonight. And they made plans that he would come back later that day and she would give him the money. Except when he did, when he came to collect the money, he actually had a couple of Nazi officers with him and they arrested Corrie Ten Boom and her family. Now they arrested the Ten Boom family, but not the six Jews who were upstairs in the hiding place. The Jews, the, the, the Jews were there safely in the hiding place and the Nazis never found them. Well, the, the officers took the Ten Boom family into custody. They offered Casper a deal 
They said, um, if you promise to stop sheltering Jews, you will be released on the spot and you can sleep in your beds tonight. Well, Corey's dad, Casper, answered them and he said, if I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks. So the officers are furious. They, they go to drag Casper away. And as they're dragging him out of this room, Corey and, and Betsy call out to dad, the Lord be with you, father. And his answer was, and also with you, my daughters. And that was the last time they saw their dad. That was the last time they spoke to their dad. In fact, Casper died about 10 days later in a prison camp. Betsy and Corey would be taken to a few different camps and they would end up at Ravensbrück concentration camp in northern Germany, just north of Berlin. Within about 10 months of being in a concentration camp, Betsy had become so sick and so weak that she also died. The older sister, the one that Corey relied on for strength and, and the one that she went to when she was afraid, Betsy died. But before she died, God would use her and Corey to start a revival in the concentration camp. And here's how it happened. Now somehow, and, and Corey calls it a miracle, Corey was able to sneak a Bible into the concentration camp. Now, the Nazis didn't read the Bible. That's kind of a, a misconception. Some people think that the Nazis were a Christian group. It's absolutely not true. The Bible was actually forbidden. They called it uh, Das Lagenbuch, which means the Book of Lies. So people were, were not to read the Bible. And coming into a concentration camp, no personal belongings are allowed, especially not a Bible. But when Corey and Betsy entered the camp, all the women, they're being marched in single file, they're being searched, sometimes they're being stripped, and Corey is in line, and she's getting closer and closer to the front, and she's freaking out because she has a, her little Dutch Bible on her. It's inside her dress, just under her hair, tucked in up, uh, up under the back of her neck. She's freaking out, and she says to Betsy, Betsy, what do I do? Is this the end? And Betsy tells her to pray. That was always Betsy's advice to her. Corey, just pray, pray. So Corey prays, and the guards... As when it got to be Corey's turn, the guards had searched the woman in front of Corey. They, in fact, they searched that woman three times. They searched Cor the person behind Corey, who was actually Corey's sister, Betsy. She got searched, but it, the, they totally ignored Corey. Corey Ten Boom was never searched. It was almost like they didn't even see her. And that was a huge answer to prayer. Corey would call that a miracle. She would say that it was angels who protected her at that time. And, and that Bible that Corey was able to sneak into the concentration camp, that's the one that Corey and Betsy would use to preach from and to lead secret Bible studies in their barracks a couple of times a day. Now, the barracks were dis disgusting. They were rat infested. These were buildings with a dirt floor. They were built for 200 women. But on any given night, there were 700 women cramped into those bunks and in that setting, Corey and Betsy led Bible studies. And we're like in a concentration camp in the barracks, in the crowded barracks of a concentration camp. How is that possible that Bible studies are being led and there's a revival happening? Well, how, how is that possible? Well, here, here's how it happened. The first night in the barracks, Corey and Betsy had really had a lot of trouble sleeping because they're so itchy and they... they they look down to figure out why are we so itchy and they realize they're covered in fleas and their hair is now infested with lice. Well, again, Corey is freaking out. 
what are we going to do? And she, she says to Betsy, what are we going to do? How are we ever going to survive this? God has clearly forgotten us. What are we going to do? Well, Betsy calms her down. Corey, pray. Pray, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It's a quote from First Thessalonians. Corey says, Corey's like, give thanks? Are you like, are you crazy? Give thanks for fleas and lice? I, I can't possibly give thanks for fleas and lice. Well, that changed. Because apparently the risk of catching fleas and lice meant that none of the guards at Ravensbrook would ever set foot inside the barracks. You know? Isn't that amazing? And what that meant was that at night, Corey and Betsy could lead Bible studies huddled under the only light bulb in the whole barracks with their Bible open, reading and teaching it in Dutch to the other prisoners. And it was amazing. And now, what did they do in those Bible studies? What would they teach? Well, they would share the hope of the promises of God from all over the scriptures. That was, that was their focus, the, the promises of God, particularly the promises of God for us in the gospel. For example, they taught from Revelation. They would read from Revelation 21 and say, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I am making everything new. And it would give such hope to the women who are listening. They would teach from Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so Corey and Betsy, they would read these promises in, in Dutch and then they would pause and the women around them would translate it from Dutch into French or into Polish or Russian or Czech and on and on. And they would pass it on so that there's all this whisper going on within the, the barracks at night so that hundreds of women could understand it in their own language. Well, after about 11 months in the prison camps, and about a couple of weeks after Betsy died, there was some kind of a mistake made in the office at Ravensbrook. Somebody made a mistake. Maybe it was the wrong name on a file. Maybe it was the wrong file in a folder or something like that. But there was a, some kind of clerical error and Corrie ten Boom was released from the prison camp and she was set free. And a week later, all the women her age, all the women about 50 years old, were sent to the gas chamber and died. And again, Corey would call that a miracle. Now, we don't know how many people in Ravensbrook came to faith in Christ through those Bible studies, but we know that Corey never stopped. After she was released, after the war had ended, Corey ten Boom created a, a rehab center for survivors of concentration camps. They had a separate one for recovering Nazis. For the next, like, 33 years of her life, Corrie ten Boom would travel. She visited something like 68 countries, sharing her story and preaching the gospel. She wrote something like 10 books, and they even made a movie about her life called The Hiding Place. Have you seen The Hiding Place? Yeah, I, I haven't seen it myself, but what I, what I do know about it actually comes from Heather, my wife, who said it's one of the scariest things she saw as a kid. It used to give her bad dreams. Well, here we are. And, you know, each week as we've been going through this set of studies, we've paused in order to pull some lessons from the stories. And, and any one of these 
lessons I'm about to share, I think it, it could probably be a sermon in itself, but I just want to share some of the lessons from the life of Corey ten Boom. First is a lesson about parenting. I think this is so important, so great. Like there is a word here for, for those of us who are parents, which is that we shape our kids by our choices, okay? They are learning who God is by watching us. Isn't that true? They see what we freak out about. They see how we spend our time. They see what gives us joy. They see what stresses us out. We, and in the life of Corrie ten Boom, from a young age, she would watch her parents and she could see on any given day them taking risks in order to serve and to love on the Jewish people. She could see them breaking the law to protect these Jewish strangers. They could see her parents, uh, she could see her parents stealing to feed them. And, and, And that preaches, don't you think? Like that really teaches a kid what's important. And if they hadn't done that. If if Corey Ten Boom's parents had the opportunity, had the means to protect Jews, and they hadn't, if they didn't do it, well, that would preach too. And you know, it's a real important reminder that as parents, we lay a foundation for our kids. We may be laying a good foundation, maybe we're not laying a very good foundation, but our kids are going to make conclusions about the world. They're going to make conclusions about what's important by watching us. And, and and so parenting is it's an amazing gift. It's such an amazing opportunity and privilege, but it is also a huge responsibility. And I think that's a really important lesson from the story of Corey Ten Boom. There's also a lesson here for us about what I would call lived theology. What do I mean by that? I think it's true that we are all theologians. We are all theologians. All of us are making choices in line with what our theology is. And your theology may not be what you think it is, but you will inevitably make choices based on what you believe is true about God. Now, there is an, there is an assumption in some circles that theology is irrelevant and it's useless and it's, it's not a good use of our time. Like, like theology matters for like nerds and professors, but there's no connection to real life. It doesn't affect our choices. That is so wrong. Each of us makes choices based on who we believe God is. If we believe God doesn't care about the choices we make, if we believe that God is aloof and he's too busy and he doesn't really care much for what's going on in our lives, we'll make choices accordingly. If we believe God loves us and God is present and God cares and God is faithful, we will make a different kind of, a different set of choices. Now, Corey Ten Boom grew up in a home where she heard reasons and explanations for why God would someday rescue Israel. They heard all kinds of great teaching from a young age about why God uh, still had a special love for Israel, why God hadn't given up on Israel. And for that reason, you can draw a straight line between the teaching that Corey Ten Boom and her siblings heard as children and their actions and their willingness to risk everything for the Jewish people as they got older. And for that reason, I would say to us, please never be embarrassed for studying doctrine. Never be embarrassed that you care about theology. Each of us is a theologian. We are all theologians. Never be embarrassed for studying theology. There's also a lesson here about God's grace. I just think this is so important. You know, Corey's life shows us 
that God seems to prefer to use people when they've come to the end of the rope. Doesn't that seem true? Has that been your experience? That God seems to prefer to use people once they've come to the end of their own ability and the end of their own strength. He doesn't seem to prefer to use varsity Christians who are totally self-confident, totally self-reliant, who never stumble or fail, who never get weak. But he seems to prefer to use people when their strength has run out, when they're not sure that they can take another step, when their ideas and their plans haven't worked out, when they're on the verge of giving up. That seems to be when God prefers to use people. and show That's when he shows up in their lives in powerful ways. And Corey Ten Boom felt this way a lot. When, when she was young, she believed she was going to be a terrible Christian because she was very stressed. She had, had a lot of anxiety and worry uh, about when things were hard. And she once tell, told the story of how her dad sat down with her uh, one night to counsel her through her, her anxiety. And she was so stressed, Dad, I could never suffer for God. I'm a terrible Christian. What am I going to do? God is God will never use me. Her dad sits down on the bed and he says, Corey, tell me, when you take a train trip to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Do I give you the, t- the ticket three weeks before? Corey answered, no, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. Her dad answers, well, that's right. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you are going to need things too. Today you you do not need this strength, but he will supply the strength you need just in time. Isn't that great? That is great advice. When we are at the end of our rope, that's when we find that God is with us. God shows up and gives us the grace we need when we need it. Like when we're at the end of our rope, that's when we find that God is with us. That he is so right. Casper was so right about that. That's the point when all the other voices fall away, all the other comforts and all the other sources of strength, they fall away. And that's when we hear God say, I'm here and my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It is. That's how God's grace works. He shows up when we need him. Well, there's another lesson uh, I want to draw from the story of Corey Ten Boom. I can't resist saying a word about singleness, okay? I, I just want to point out that Corey Ten Boom never married, okay? She accepted her singleness as a gift from God. Sure, it was hard at the beginning. In her, in her teen years, in her 20s, she prayed for a husband. But as she grew older, she began to embrace her singleness and, and eventually to thank God for it in her 40s and 50s and onward. And, and so at the end of Corey's life, you know, it's, it's really important for you to know, Corey doesn't come to the end of her life and she's sitting in some rocking chair, you know, like surrounded by cats and she's bitter and jealous because God ripped her off by not bringing her a husband and not allowing her to have any kids. That's really important. Because, you know, it seems to me in our culture and maybe maybe particularly in church world, we see that romance or we see marriage as a sign of like full personhood. Like we level up once we get married. We level up even further once we've had kids. But singleness, some assume, is kind of like this like this lesser mode of being. It's just not true. I don't know where that comes from, but it is not true. It's not, has no, it has nothing to do with the teaching of scripture. It's, you know, single people, of course, yes, single people will face certain challenges and temptations. That's true. 
married people will also face certain challenges and temptations. Isn't that right? Yes, of course it is. And, and so Corey's singleness was a, a pathway to her experiencing God in all kinds of powerful, beautiful ways that she could never have if she had gotten married, if she'd had kids. And I just feel like maybe we need to hear that every once in a while. So there's a lesson here about singleness. And I think there's a, a, another lesson, the last one here, a lesson for us about the comfort of the scriptures. I just got to say, it blows my mind that in the darkness, the evil and horror, the despair of the Holocaust in a concentration camp, so many women found comfort and hope. Uh, I try to envision these 700 women crowded together in the barracks, covered in lice and fleas, and they're looking forward to being in the barracks so that they could hear and they could gather around the teaching of Corey and Betsy Ten Boom as they teach scripture. And it's just like, how does that happen? How is that possible? Well, here's a, here's a quote from Corey Ten Boom. She says, as the rest of the world grew stranger, one, of the, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. But as for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waifs clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Do you hear that? The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. You know, in, in our day, I get that it can feel like a chore to spend time in scripture. In, in many ways, I, I totally get that. We've We've been told it's too hard for lay people to understand on their own. We've been told, even by some people, we've been told it's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus. You can lower your expectations of the Bible, just think about Jesus, and that's that's enough. We sometimes think that, like, scholars disagree on what the Bible teaches, and so there's really no point in us trying. We, we come to this point where we say, like, just tell me what to believe, and I'll do it. I'll, I'll believe it. I don't have time to think this through for myself. I don't have time to read. Don't ask me to read it for myself. Just tell me what's true. I get it. But isn't it interesting? You know, the more safe and the more comfortable we are, the more comforts and privileges that we enjoy, it seems the less comfort we seek in the words of Scripture. Isn't that true? The more comforts and privileges we enjoy, it seems the less we rely on scripture to give us comfort. But once those comforts and privileges are all stripped away, as they were in the concentration camp, that's when the Bible stands out. That's when we can say, like in Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. Don't you see, that's when God's words taste sweet to us, when our mouths aren't full of other things, that's when we can say, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. That's when we can say, God, your word is a lamp for my feet. Your word is a light for my path. Your word is my hiding place. Now, I hope it doesn't take persecution for me, for us, to see what a treasure that we have in Scripture. 
it it might take that. It might come to that. I, I hope it doesn't, but it might. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But Corrie ten Boom would say that it wasn't until she was immersed in the horror and the suffering of a concentration camp that God's promises in the scriptures were real for her. That's what she would say. And she would say the scripture never failed to comfort her. And I want that for us. Don't you? I want that for us. I want such a relationship with the Bible that it's not a chore, but a joy. I want such a relationship that as I handle the scriptures, I hear God speak and the other voices all fade away and I can hear him and I can hear his promises and I can trust that he can keep them. And you know, it's possible. Like, it happens. Let me close with these, the words from uh, Corrie ten Boom. She said, I have experienced God's presence in the deepest, darkest hell that man can can create. I have tested the promises of the Bible, and believe me, you can count on them. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you.